If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello all. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about literary dependence and the synoptic problem. This is looking at the process by which the Gospel authors went about writing the Gospel books. Given that the Gospel books are so similar, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it raises the questions such as, do they copy each other? Are the similarities due to the divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit? What do the evangelical scholars say about this? Is there something wrong with their approach? John will be looking to answer these questions and more. We're continuing from the previous episode today. We hope you enjoy. Well, again, Lakota's not made a case. He's made assertions that what is clearly historical narrative is not historical narrative. Would they make the same kind of argument if we denied the historicity of the resurrection and said it was simply a symbolic teaching about a spiritual resurrection? Would they say, well, he's made the case, so anybody who wants to argue has to go against it? I don't think so. But in point of fact, we've made the case. Okay? Why this is not, not valid, but here's another one. If we look at the account, what happens right after these symbols are set to happen and described... What, what does the narrative continue with? What's the, what's the next thing that happens? Right after that part where it says that coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. It starts at verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What comes next? The centurion. What does it say? Oh, he said. Uh, oh, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, "Truly, this was the Son of God." Okay, do you see a, an exegetical problem here? If those symbols never actually happened, these were just a, apocalyptic comments from the writer, and they didn't actually happen. What did the centurion and those with him see? Well, maybe the centurion is also part of the apocalyptic series. Well, maybe there's no centurion either. It's, you see, this begins to snowball. The text tells us the centurion and those with him saw these things that happened. So this is another assertion that these things happened. And Lacona does say that when you get to verse 54, you're back to historical narrative. So you got a problem because the historical narrative is asserting not only that these things happened, but that the centurion and those with him concluded that this was the Son of God because of those signs. But look at us, the signs never happened. So what do we do with this? Is Matthew also inventing the centurion and those with him? Yeah, so maybe, maybe the earthquake was real and he saw some things that happened, but not all the things. So maybe he saw everything except the saints rising. Well, he says, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, and those things that had happened, the, the antecedent to this includes that. There, there's no 
offset between the bodies of saints falling asleep and the graves being open and the rocks being split and the earth quaking. He saw the signs. The signs were real. And you also, you cannot separate them because Silicona, the reason for saying this is not historical narrative is because these are all apocalyptic symbols. Remember he said these are the apocalyptic symbols. These are the poetic symbols that people put in into Greco-Roman bias to show that a great man died. They were darkness, earthquakes, rock splitting, graves opening, bodies. All of them are supposed to be apocalyptic. Not just, not just that one. His, his whole argument is that, that this apocalyptic because of all those signs. And yet here in 54, we're told that the centurion and those with him saw the signs and actually drew a conclusion about Jesus on the basis of seeing the signs. So were they also fictitious? I guess there's no way out if you're going to take it that way. If they're fictitious, who nailed Jesus to the cross? Well, there's nowhere that says it's that centurion who nailed him. So So it's talking about a non-existent centurion. Well, how many centurions are there? This one's guarding Jesus. might not be the same guy who nailed him to the cross. I think they had a change of of shift there. Maybe. That's not the way it was done. The, The ones who nailed him are the ones responsible to make sure he dies. So you've got a bit of a problem here. It, it begins to run and run and run. It, if there are no signs, then there's no centurion could see a sign. You're going to have to start saying that verse 54 is also fictitious. And and it, it spreads from there. If the centurion is not really there, why, why did Matthew put him in there? He couldn't really see the signs. And if the centurion is not really there, then hey, maybe the many women who followed Jesus from Galilee are also not really there. Well, this says they were looking on from afar, but it doesn't say that they saw those things. No, it doesn't, but this is the problem. If the centurion is fictitious, it says he's there, but it's a fictitious. Remember he said it's hard to tell where where symbolism ends and, and history begins. How do you know where it ends there? Well, I guess because that next verse doesn't have anything connected with the apocalyptic symbols. 54 is connected because... The centurion saw the apocalyptic symbols, but in 55, there's nothing connecting the women to the centurion or the apocalyptic symbols. Yeah. So, so the apocalyptic symbols rule everything. When there's the, anything connected with the apocalyptic symbols, we're supposed to assume that that's fictitious. Okay, well, we'll see where that takes us, but for now, let's continue. Meanwhile, it's talking about those people who argue with Lacona, who object to the idea this is fictitious. Because meanwhile, they are the ones who are violating the Chicago Statement on inerrancy, not those like Dr. Lacona. So if we say that what the Bible says really ha- what the Bible says happened really happened, we're violating the Chicago Statement on inerrancy. That's a neat trick. Now, there's there's another yet another scholar who shows up, uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, who generally I think is a, is a good scholar. But he, he also will say that Lacona's view doesn't constitute a violation of inerrancy because, in essence, the doctrine of inerrancy teaches that whatever Scripture affirms is true, but this doctrine in and of itself does not answer the question of what Scripture affirms. Does Genesis affirm six 24-hour days? Some say yes, others say no. But this is an interpretive issue, not an inerrancy issue. Inerrancy is violated if a person acknowledges that Scripture affirms something and then also acknowledges that the thing it affirms is false. And Lacona has not done this. Do you see a problem with that approach? 
other than it's not true in fact, because Lacona has said other things. When you get to his book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Yes, he will say a whole bunch of things that Scripture affirms that he says isn't actually correct because the writers put them in there for effect. Well, let's see. Inerrancy is violated if a person acknowledges that Scripture affirms something. Okay, I guess he's saying Lacona is is not acknowledging that Scripture actually affirmed the saints rising because everyone knows that it's a symbol or what? Yeah, he's basically saying that if I say the Bible says X, but X is false, then I'm denying inerrancy. If I say the Bible says X, but doesn't really mean X, so it's not really saying X, therefore X is false, that I'm still inerrant. I'm still seen as inerrant. You see the problem with this? He's saying as long as you don't say the Bible affirms something that you say is false, you're not denying inerrancy, but... You can essentially say anything the Bible affirms. It doesn't really affirm it. As long as you're saying it doesn't really affirm it, then you can deny it and still be inerrant. So if I would say that the Bible doesn't really affirm that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, it simply affirms that this was a spiritual resurrection, then I'm not denying inerrancy of the Bible where it says that Jesus rose from the dead. It says he rose from the dead. I say he didn't rise from the dead, but I'm still iner- I still believe in inerrancy. Because I'm saying that, well, the Bible never really meant that he rose from the dead. Do you see what happens to the Bible with this kind of approach? You basically can throw out anything that you don't like and still say, I believe in inerrancy. And these scars are telling you, yep, we can still see you as consistent with inerrancy. This is sounding kind of like a philosophy debate now. It's a very, very bad philosophy, if you ask me. Another thing that came up here... That concerns me, as Dr. Kruger said, this, does Genesis affirm 624-hour days? Some say yes, others say no, but this is an interpretive issue, not an inerrancy issue. Now, this, to me, really raises warning bells because it shows which way this approach goes. We have to ask, if we can't understand Genesis 1, can we understand anything the Bible says? We covered this in our series on, on creationism. The text is very, very clear in what it says about creation. It's very clear in English. It's particularly clear in Hebrew. It does say that God created the world and the things in it in six earth rotation, what we call 24-hour days. There's really no question about that. And there wasn't for 1,800 years in the history of the church. All the experts and scholars read it as what it says. It was not until secular science started challenging that, that some Christians started saying, okay, well, maybe it's not really six 24-hour days. And then it becomes an, an interpretive issue. But here's the problem. If the text is so clear that no Christian challenged it really for 1,800 years, how did it suddenly become unclear? Can we now consign this passage from clear to unclear and say, well, it's just a matter of interpretation, not of understanding. Again, as I say, then can we understand anything the Bible says? Is there anything in the Bible that is so plain that we would then be able to say, well, no, that, that's a matter of understanding, not interpretation. Whereas other things we say, well, that's an interpretive issue, regardless of what the text says, regardless of how clear the text is. How would we know? How do we decide what we have to hold to, what is clear, and what is an interpretive issue? 
Well, I guess each time there's an alleged interpretive issue, you have to make up an excuse. So for the saints rising, there's the Greco-Roman bios excuse for, for the Genesis. There's the, what does the Hebrew really say, excuse, but maybe it's not going to be possible to think of an excuse for everything. Yes, and that's very significant that you say that, because you see, in either case, is the reason for questioning what the text says or denying what the text says coming out of the text? None of it comes out of what the Bible actually says. It comes from external forces telling you, no, you you can't believe this. They're telling you, has God really said this? Does that sound familiar? Has God indeed said? Well, the, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Yes. I wonder, what is the point of giving us a Bible anyway, if it's some kind of uh, abstruse black box that we really can't understand? In Habakkuk 2.2, God tells the prophet, write the vision and make it plain. 2 Corinthians 1.13 says, For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. That's what the Bible's written for. There's, there's nothing about what you read or interpret. It's what you read or understand. The text is plain in each of these cases. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.